Good morning, West Village. It is uh, good to see uh, all of you. Um, this is my second favorite church in Ottawa. My first is the church where I'm a pastor at, but I really love coming and, uh, and being with all of you. You have all been so nice to me. Thanks to the elders for letting me come and preach and inviting me to come back and spend time with y'all. I really do just count this as a joy to, to get to spend time and get to spend time studying God's Word. Today we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, verse 53, uh, into chapter 7, verse 23. Uh, but before I read the text, let's take a minute to, to just pray to the Lord and ask for His help. And this is going to be a big passage, so I'll ask for His help for us to, to listen well, for me to read well, and just for Him to work on our, on our hearts this morning, right? Let's pray. Merciful Father, we so often feel like you're silent we ask of you that you would speak to us this morning. Speak to us loudly through your word. Lord, would you shake our hearts? Would you comfort our hearts? And have mercy on your preacher this morning. He is weak and sinful and he needs you. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. So Mark six fifty three to 723. And, uh, and, and this is a big passage, so just, just get ready. Summon all, all the courage it takes just to, to read through it and listen well. I'm reading from the ESV. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him, that is Jesus, and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds wherever they heard that he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Chapter 7-1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Verse 9. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles a father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Verse 14. And he called the people to him again, and he said to them, 
Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and he left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, Whatever comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Defilement. Defilement. Now, we rarely use that word anymore. To defile something is to make it dirty, to ruin it. So when you get something gross on your hands, you feel defiled, and so you go and you scrub, scrub, scrub until you feel clean again. Defilement can be mental too, can't it? Like whenever you're, you're talking with somebody or you see something and, and you're just like, oh man, my, my brain, my mind feels gross, and you just wish you could scrub your brain. That's defilement. This story from Mark is about defilement, and Jesus gets really fired up about defilement. And as usual in the Gospels, he's mad at the religious elite of the day, the really super religious people. And why? Because the the religious people saw everybody else in society as icky. So when they would go to the, the, the marketplace with all the common folk, they would come home and they would scrub, scrub, scrub just from being in contact with him. And this angers Jesus because it shows them all to be a bunch of hypocrites. See, they love to point the finger out there and say defilement's out there. But they aren't brave enough to point the finger at their hearts and see what's inside, the ick inside. Jesus says their own hearts are what truly defile them. So let us see this morning, West Village, if we are brave enough to listen to what Jesus has to say, okay? Because spoiler, religious or not, whoever you are here this morning, we can all be just as hypocritical as these scribes and Pharisees. So we're going to study this passage in three parts. We're going to follow the flow of the text. First, we prefer to see defilement as coming from the outside. Second, Jesus says that defilement comes from the inside. And third, Jesus doesn't just rebuke. He's not just trying to make us feel bad or something. He actually offers a solution to this problem because he wants to make us clean. And and that's what we're ultimately going to see today. So we prefer to see defilements coming from outside. Jesus tells us defilement comes from inside. But don't fear, Jesus wants to make us clean. So let's jump in. Part one. We want to see defilement as coming from outside. So we're going to be looking at the controversy of Jesus' disciples not washing their hands after they get back from the market. Uh, So look at verse uh, 53. We need to start with the setting for this passage. Verse 53, uh, they land their boat in Gennesaret. Five points if you know where Gennesaret is. 
Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, Bible geography is really hard. We have like the, the Gadarenes, the, the Gerasenes, G- Gennesaret. Uh, Gennesaret was this place on the north shore of Galilee, like way up there uh, by Bethsaida and Capernaum. And, and these places matter in, in Mark's gospel because that's where a lot of Jesus's ministry has been happening. Uh, so that's why all these people recognize Jesus in verse 54. They remember Jesus healing people. Remember that woman, if, if you know the story, who had an issue of blood for like 12 years? That's, that's where that happened, you know, in this sort of area. And, and so people know the story. And so they, verse 56, everybody's bringing all their sick friends to go see this Jesus, this miracle man. Now, I want us to, to take this, this image of these crowds in the marketplace around Jesus and, and burn it into our minds. So, so Jesus is walking through the market, you know, past the, like the pomegranate stand and all the hummus. And, and he's going through it, and all these crowds are gathering around him. People with disfigurements. People who are sick and coughing and hacking up a lung. Dirty, dirty people. People covered in flies. Lepers. And they're all just groping out blindly, just trying to touch Jesus to be healed. Take this image and burn it into your minds because that's going to be the answer for everything. Then comes the controversy. Rumor has it that Jesus' disciples, his students, they're eating without washing their hands after they come back from the market, you know, or, or eating whenever. See, COVID has really put us in the mood of washing our hands. Uh, we, are, we are hand washers. The Jews of Jesus' day, they were hand washers too, but not for the same reason. I mean, I imagine some of those fishermen after they got back from the Sea of Galilee and their, their hands are covered in fish slime. If you've ever caught a fish, you know you do not want to go eat unless you have washed your hands. Well, that's not why they wash their hands. They wash their hands not from germs, but because they had a more ritualistic view of purity. So where'd they get this idea, or what's going on? Back in the Old Testament, whenever God rescued his people out of Egypt, he gave them the law, the Torah. And in the Torah, there were three parts of the law, you could say. Uh, There was the civil the moral and the ceremonial. And the civil law, it has to do with like how Israel as a state was to govern their state. The moral law is the Ten Commandments, don't lie, steal, cheat, uh, don't worship idols. Essentially, God's heart, that, that he wants us to follow his heart. And then the third, though, is the ceremonial law. And this has to do with all the little ways that God wanted his people to be distinct from the rest of the, of the world. Uh, so... You think of tassels on on garments that the the law required. That wasn't a moral thing. That was something to symbolize a distinction. They they were different from the rest of the world. No mixed fabric clothing. You heard that one? Not moral. Simply to distinguish Israel from the rest of, of their neighbors. Not eating pork has nothing to do with health. So they didn't do the things that the nations around them did. Jesus said that he declared all all foods clean in this passage. God wanted his people to be marked as holy, marked as distinct, 
And that's what the ceremonial law was about. They were God's people, God's family. Part of that ceremonial law was washing. So, priests, they were supposed to wash their hands and and even their feet whenever they would go do sacrifices in the tabernacle or temple. Regular people would would go wash up if they had a bodily discharge. Uh, My favorite one, though, was, so say you're in a city, and then outside the city you find a random dead body, and nobody knows what happened, okay? And so then all the elders of the city would come out, and they'd They'd be like, okay, we don't have a clue, so let's kill an ox, and then we're going to wash our hands over this. And essentially what hand washing was, it was, it was us saying, we need to be cleansed. There's problems, and, and, and we've done stuff. We don't even know the half of it, but we need to be cleansed before we come into the presence of God. We need him to cleanse us. So it was a plea to God for a clean conscience. And that's what Peter says in the New Testament. So fast forward a number of centuries, and Israel sins so much that they they get cast out of of their homeland into the nations, they're exiled, and then eventually they come back. And they say, man, I never want to do that again, so let us do whatever we possibly can to never get exiled. And so they started coming up with all these extra rules to be safeguards to keep them from sinning, essentially, and getting kicked out. And and these extra rules called the the oral Torah or the the Mishnah, they they, they were like safeguards or checklists. So to be a good Israelite, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. And so they thought, well, if it was good for the priests to wash their hands before they did something, well, it's probably good for all of us. So let's wash our hands whenever we come back from the market, everybody. Rule. And so so that's the context for this story. What's really going on in their mind? But we need to pause here and really look at how they're viewing the ceremonial law. Because the ceremonial law, it was meant to be a distinction, right? It's more like a picket fence. You know, one of those white fences you have around your house and, and it's not really, it might keep toddlers or dogs in, but it's, it's not really like a, a real fence. It's there mostly for decoration. It says, hey, look, this is our piece of land. There's order here, or at least there should be. The, the toys are on the inside of the fence for the most part. It's, it's nice, though. You know, come over, have a cup of, cup of tea. That's, that's a picket fence. It, it's like the Pharisees. They, took, they looked at this picket fence and said, that didn't work. That wasn't good enough. Let's, let's build a stone wall 10 feet high, and we're going to keep all the bad stuff out there. Wash your hands whenever you come home from the market because the market's where the bad stuff is, the icky stuff is. But they completely miss the heart of the law. Why were they supposed to do washings in the first place? Because they wanted to be clean before God because they knew there was stuff in here. They were pleading for God for a clear conscience. And so doing this, they just made hypocrites out of themselves. They wanted to say that defilement was simply an external thing. But the ceremonial law represented them being cleansed of their own sin. It didn't work. They missed the heart of the law. Side note, the name Pharisee, uh, it means somebody who is separated. It comes from the word to separate. And so you can even see in how they talk about themselves this desire to see bad people and good people. 
as opposed to bad people who need to be cleansed by God. We love doing the same thing, friends. They built a 10-foot high stone wall of all these extra rules. We try to do the same thing. We want to externalize defilement. From the comfort of our couches, we will point our finger in outrage at what's happening like with, with Hockey Canada as abuse reports surface. We will point our finger in outrage at organizational leaders who, who groom and manipulate their staff. We will point our fingers at boomers or millennials or Gen Z for all the ways that these people just get it wrong. We will peer over our stone wall, point our fingers, and wash our hands. And why do we like doing this so much? It's because as long as the, like the defilement's out there somewhere, and only out there, we feel safe. We love to externalize defilement. This brings us to part two. Jesus says, defilement isn't out there. It's in here. It's internal. Uh, the rest of this text is actually Jesus' scathing rebuke of, of what he's just heard from the Pharisees. He's very upset with them. Look at verse 6. He calls them hypocrites. Because they're, they're acting out of accord with the very law that they're claiming to teach and claiming to follow. He starts the rebuke by quoting the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, saying, verse 6, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. See, Isaiah was talking about, in, in his day, this was 700 years before, Isaiah was talking about the, the leaders of his day who had become blind to their own sinfulness. And from this, their worship of God had become meaningless. As soon as religion becomes just a, a right, something that you do, something that you follow, and, and not a heart issue, there, there's no point in doing it. it it's empty worship. It's empty repetition. And so Isaiah's prophecy continues, and it says one day, God's going to come back. God's going to fix the problem. He's going to judge all the evil leaders, and he's going to open up the eyes of the blind and heal the needy and the sick so that for the first time they can know that the God of heaven is a God who cares for the orphan, the widow, the, the, the person who's leprous and diseased, the meek, the lowly, the downcast, the ashamed. He's a God who cares for the defiled. You distract people from that, and Jesus gets mad. Then Jesus moves on to this whole Corban thing in verses 9 to 13. This is Jesus entering into teacher mode with the, with the flock. Uh, he, it really, it's to talk to the scribes and Pharisees in language they can understand. And what he does is he actually starts poking holes in this stone wall that they've raised. He knocks it down by showing how inconsistent it is with God's word. And so he gives a case study, vows, vows, promises. And the, the scribes, they had a pretty rigorous system of vows, how they would understand what to do whenever somebody made one. And so Jesus, he pitches this idea to them. And he says, okay, you think you know vows. How do you handle this situation? There's a man... And he makes a vow, but then he regrets the vow because the vow's bad. 
And Jesus knew that according to this pharisaical system of vows, that the man still has to do the vow, even though he realizes the vow is bad. So look at verse 11. He tells them, You say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban. Let's stop there. Korban, it means something set aside for a special purpose. Like if I told you that my car was korban, it meant that like... We couldn't just freely use my car. Like I probably couldn't let you borrow my car. It would only be to like drive to church on Sundays or maybe to take like a spiritual journey in or something. It would be like set apart, right? It it comes from the idea of offering something up as holy to the Lord. But if this hypothetical man that Jesus tells the story of, he makes a vow to give up whatever duties he owes his parents. Maybe he uh, owes them time or money as a good son, or maybe just a, a Thursday afternoon carrying in the groceries. He offers that up as Corban, and then he regrets it. The, the Pharisees say, well, no, you made the vow. You have to keep the vow. You can't help mom carry in the groceries. That's the scenario here. Even though the fifth commandment of the moral law is what? Honor your father and your mother. The Pharisees are showing their own inconsistency that they would hold to vows in this one sense but not in this other sense, that this thing over here would somehow trump what is more important over here. They claim to teach the law, but only in ways that seem easily doable to them. Uh, See, the the raison d'etre of the law, it was to teach us to love God and to love people. And that can be really messy, can't it? Like, like that's, a, that's a difficult thing to do, to love somebody. The Pharisees are tossing aside what is messy to do something that seems more feasible. And so verse 9, look at what Jesus says. He says they're actually rejecting God's commandment. Verse 13, they're making God's word void or meaningless. Because they're, they're saying, if you make a vow, keep it. It's that simple. And you know it's hard to regulate? You know it's not simple? You know, are you loving your mom? Are you loving your dad? That's difficult to handle. Making sure somebody keeps track of a vow or like not doing something, we can manage that. But this other thing, that's, that's too much. The church today needs to take heed whenever it comes to this. My denomination, I'm part of the PCA, the Presbyterian group, um, we just recently did this uh, a, a report, like a study thing, a big paper, more like a book, on abuse um, so that church leaders know how to handle abuse situations better. And I, I tell you, it has been fueling my nightmares as I've been working through this, this study. Uh, but one thing from the, the report, really, it stuck out to me because it sounds a lot like what's happening in the text today. Often in cases of spousal abuse, church leaders have told an abused person to stay married to their abuser. And why? Because the marriage vow is important, and that vow must be upheld. We as a church have really made a mess of things by ignoring the destructive things that have happened to families all in the name of holding up a vow that seems more doable. 
Abusers are the ones who destroy marriages, harm people, harm wives, children, anything. Like, like, it's a bad thing. They are the ones who break this. So let us just be careful of how we talk about vows as a church. Because Jesus, I think, is outraged. Look, I said that Jesus was using this vow stuff as an illustration of how that stone wall of theirs was inconsistent. He's using this as an illustration of externalizing of what's wrong in the world. Let us not be guilty of doing the same thing. Now, we, we may all in the room, like after I say something kind of heavy like that, be like, oh man, I'm so glad I'm not one of those people. I'm so glad I haven't, you know, counseled somebody to stay in a marriage that was bad for them in, in a situation like that or something. But look, we are just as inconsistent. Let us not be guilty even in this moment of pointing the fingers out there. See, all of us in this room are guilty of this in some way. Uh, we will champion social causes. We will, we will say things. We will vote for things. And we will claim to be people who care about society as lar- at large. Yet we will, we will turn around and we will neglect our own families. You should probably call your mom. Don't neglect your family. Don't neglect the things that have put in your sphere of control while championing some outside cause. You know, we love to say that people are toxic as well. Have, maybe you've said that this past week, maybe about a certain coworker. Uh, you know, toxic, that's just like the 21st century way of saying defiling. And we, we think that we just have to cut people out off and, and, and keep them on the other side of a big stone wall because they just, they spoil our life. They make it messy. Now look, some of you have really been through some really bad, manipulative, abusive stuff, maybe with parents, maybe with with work, and there really should be some distance there. There really should be some wall of sorts. And take that seriously. But for many of us, we are way too quick to offer up our lives as core band to ourselves, to say, no, this is my stuff. I've got to keep these other forces outside at bay and do what's good for me. Next, Jesus brings us to the heart of the real issue, why we do this. It's the heart. Verse 14, he calls this crowd together, and then verse 15, he tells them, there's nothing outside a person that by going into them can defile them, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Essentially saying, we're part of the problem. You know, like, how? when do you like to complain about traffic the most? It's when, when, you're, when you are traffic, right? Uh, that, that's true of, of any of these sins that sort of plague us. We're, we're part of the problem. And so, so uh, after Jesus says this to the crowds, he goes into a house, and Jesus' disciples, they ask him, what was that about? I still don't understand. In verse 18, he tells them, it's not what goes into you. It's, it's not what comes from outside that goes into your life that, that, that defiles you. No, food goes in, food goes out. That's fine. What is it? Verse 21, what defiles you is your heart. Now, we need to stop here for a second. Are we ready to listen to Jesus? Are we willing to listen to Jesus? Because I want to shut him out. I want to distract myself from what goes on in my own heart. 
But Jesus is right, isn't he? See, my evil thoughts, those are mine from my heart. Uh, My inappropriate desires, those are mine from my heart. Your desire to hide the truth, that's yours. That's not come from the outside. That's your heart. Your desire to talk bad about people, that's not their fault. That's yours. That comes from your heart. Our, Our pride, that's ours from our heart. Our foolishness, that's ours from our heart. Now, we look at the mess of our lives, and we so desperately want to point the finger out there or at somebody out there. But when we do that, we lock ourselves inside of a big stone wall, and we are not alone in there, friends. There is a wicked, defiling heart in there with us. Society won't tell us that. Sweet grandparents won't tell us that. But Jesus tells us that. Jesus tells us that, and we will hate him for it unless we understand why he does it. He says, he tells us the truth because he's not afraid of that truth. We are desperately afraid of that truth to find out what's going on inside. A few weeks ago, um, I was sitting in my office, church office, and then all of a sudden, y'all, it was horrible. There's this smell that came out of like a sewer pipe. It was the worst smell I've ever smelled in my life. It was so it was chemical and defiling and horrific. Uh, the, the paint started peeling off the wall. The, the, the plants were wilting. Um, my eyes were burning. I was defiled in that moment just, just by the smell of it. What had happened was in our office bathroom, uh, we have like a drain in the floor. And any of you people who like know how plumbing works, you're like, ah, I know what happened. But uh, the, this tube, you know, that has a drain in the floor from this grate, and then there's a little U-bend and it goes down. There's a water barrier. And that water barrier keeps all the sewer gas down in the sewer where it's supposed to be. But as soon as that barrier evaporates, then all that gas just floods straight out that pipe and into Frankie and defiles him. I've since been pouring water down that drain to make sure that thing is solid. But that's what it's like whenever we start to encounter what goes on in our hearts. We want to stop it. We want to distract. We either run or we want to just stop. Put a, put a stop on it. It's terrifying. Ever notice how you can be in a good mood and then get super defensive really quick whenever somebody points out something you've done? Just trying to stop it. But that reveals something, doesn't it? We are defiled inside. We are afraid of that truth. We hate it. But the good news here this morning, we're going to start to see, is Jesus is not afraid of that. And that's why he can talk about our hearts so openly and so boldly. And this brings us to our last point. It's not a long point, but it's the most important point. Why isn't Jesus afraid of our defilement like we are? It's because Jesus seeks the defiled. He runs toward the defiled. He wants to make us clean. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, you're just exploring the ideas of Christianity. This is one of the strangest ideas about our faith, but it's also 
probably the most important thing you need to dwell on today. Most religions and philosophies in the world, they're wise enough to realize that, look, if there is a God out there, he's got to be better than us. He's got to be more pure in his thought. He's got to be right all the time. He's got to be clean. Holy. The shocking thing that the Bible reveals is that, yeah, God is. But that doesn't mean he's unwilling to come and step down into our muck and come down here in the dirt and the mud and the filth with us. That's the crazy thing. That the holy God put on flesh so his flesh could come down here and be defiled. Jesus didn't come just to teach you and me a way of coping with this life. A philosophy of, you know, like, you know, not your monkeys, not your problems sort of thing. A, a philosophy of just like, how do I feel okay in a dark and stormy life? That's not why Jesus came. Jesus came in order to wash you clean, to make your heart pure. So how does Jesus do it? It doesn't actually say in this story. But that's because the story isn't over yet. We have to follow the story all the way to the cross where Jesus died. And how did he die? Was he clean and pristine and holy? No. No. He who knew no sin became sin, became defiled, so that we who are defiled could become clean, the very righteousness of God. This is the, the, the theologians will tell you, this is the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement where Jesus takes our filth onto him and then makes us clean. Double imputation. What he has, we get. What we have, he takes. That's the good news. Now, we see that in hints throughout this passage. Mark settles this controversy over cleanliness between two stories in his gospel. Uh, the first one is Jesus going to the, the, the crowded marketplace, what we read about all those people just reaching out and, and groping for him blindly uh, with defiled hands, and they're healed. The, the next passage that comes after is Jesus is off in, uh, he's speaking with this Syrio-Phoenician woman who, who refers to herself as a dog, and, and Jesus says, like, you're not that you're my child. I'm, I'm taking you from this foreign place and I'm making you my family because our God is a God who looks at defiled people and he says, no, here, you're going you're gonna to wear a clean wedding dress and you're going to have my last name. That's who our God is. And that's what we see in the person of Jesus Christ revealed through the scriptures. But the story doesn't end there in this section. It continues all the way to the night before, when, before Jesus died. Do you remember him as it was with his disciples and, and he wasn't wearing a king's gown. How was he dressed in that last supper? He was, he was wearing a towel around his waist. And he was getting down on his knees, right? And, and, and the disciples would come in and, and he, would, he would wash them. And he would take their filth off of them with that towel. And he'd wear it on himself. Jesus... He's coming for you too. You don't have to fear the truth about yourself. He's not afraid. He looks at your heart. And he sees your sin. He sees it and he says, that's mine. He looks at your sexual history. And he says, that's mine. 
I'm taking that, putting that on me. He looks at your theft. He says, that's mine. He, he looks at the way that you've talked bad about people and says, that's mine. Those were my words. I'm going to pay for that. And he dies for it. And because he did that, God now looks at you and he says, you are clean. You are as clean as my perfect son, Jesus. This is yours now. Jesus' heart is yours now. Do you want to be clean? Do you want to be cleansed? Reach out this morning. For the first time or for the thousandth time, reach out with your heart. You're dirty, defiled everything. Reach out and touch him. Touch Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, you have shaken us. You have frightened us with the uncomfortable truth of ourselves. Let the comfort of your cleansing love confuse us for the rest of our lives and give us joy. Help us to follow you, our hearts to long for you. Give us clean hearts. We ask this in the name of your perfect son, Jesus. Amen.